And uh, please, could the rest of us turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter um, chapter 8. Uh, if you're feeling a little bit cool um, this morning, the reason is because we've ha- we have actually, in the light of concerns about the energy crisis and heating bills, etc. We have actually turned the thermostat down uh, as an experiment. If it's too unbearable for people, then we will put it back up again. Um, but So um, maybe some feedback uh, would be appreciated if you get hypothermia or you're ill tomorrow, let us know. But um, hopefully uh, we, will, we will make it through okay. Uh, so um, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and... Um, We're going to read this morning uh, verses 6 through to 9. Okay, so 2 Corinthians chapter 6 to 9. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, or that could read, or in your love for us, according to some manuscripts, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty, might become rich. Well, now let's, uh, let's now uh, draw near to God and let's uh, seek him together. Lord God, thank you for this opportunity to consider your word. Please, Lord, help me to teach your word well. And please also um, help us, Lord, to hear from you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we, um, we started uh, looking at uh, this, these two chapters in 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9, which are a little section, in a sense, all of their own, where the apostle is encouraging the believers uh, to contribute generously to the collection that he was putting up, he was gathering together for the believers in Jerusalem. And although we live in very different times, very different circumstances, uh, there are principles which we can draw out from these chapters which are timeless, which apply to us as well. And encourage us also to give generously 
to, uh, to, to other believers who are in need and to the poor in general and for the Lord's work and, and, other, and other situations. Now, last week we were looking at chapters, uh, chapter 8 and verses 1 to 5, where uh, the apostle uh, spoke to the believers in Corinth about the tremendous example of the churches in Macedonia. The Macedonia is a bit north of, of uh, Corinth. And here were these people who were a wonderful example of Christian generosity. Uh, they, um, they, they were very generous in spite of the fact that they, they had really difficulty, they were in a very difficult situation. They were, they were, they'd been through a lot of trials and they'd been through many difficulties. They were very poor. And yet, even in spite of the, 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 the difficult situation they're in, they gladly contributed to the, this collection for the believers in, in, in Jerusalem. They were joyful as they gave. And um, they, they uh, gave sacrificially, verse 3, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. They were they, they dug deep into their pockets. Not because Paul said, oh, come on, you've got to give some money. No, they wanted to give. They gave of their own accord. They gladly uh, wanted to contribute to this, this uh, collection that was going on. They actually, verse 4, they, they were begging for the favor of of, you know, they considered it a privilege to be able to give. They weren't thinking, you know, they weren't sort of, they didn't have their arm twisted up the back, you know, and you know, they were sort of giving out of a sense of, you know, compulsion. No, they, they saw it as a wonderful privilege to be able to give. And they, rather than Paul was saying to them, I want you to give, they said to Paul, we want to give. They begged for the favour of giving to these people. And, and they... Um, this, this giving came out of also a great dedication to Christ. Uh, verse 5. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us, also to us. They, their whole lives were given over to the Lord. And because of that, they, they wanted to give. Now, having sort of spoken about the example of these uh, believers in Macedonia, Paul now turns his attention to the believers in Corinth. And over the next, in fact, pretty much up to uh, verse, verse 15, he, he gives various different reasons as to why it would be good for them to give. Not that he He's saying, you've got to give. We'll see a bit more about that. Not that he's saying, you know, I'm telling you as your apostle, you've got to give X amount. No, it wasn't that way. But he was wanting to encourage them to contribute generously to this collection. Now, uh, as I've been preparing this, uh, it seems to me there are six reasons which Paul um, 
gives in those verses. And it seems to me it would be best to break it down into two halves. So today I'm hoping to look at the first three reasons. And then it probably will be in two weeks' time, God willing, we'll pick up and uh, look at the other three reasons. So the first three reasons, the the three reasons I want us to think about today are in verses, well, really seven to nine. Um, and, uh, and, and I'll give you them, I'll give you those three reasons as headings now, and then we'll think about, about those, those reasons. First of all, then, we should be generous in order to have a fully rounded Christian character, verse seven. Secondly, we should be generous in order to prove that we have love and thereby prove that we are true believers. And then thirdly, we should be generous because the Lord Jesus Christ has been generous with us. So let us think about these things together. And my prayer is that if you are a Christian, you'll come away from this morning service thinking, God has been good to me. I am blessed. And because you feel blessed, you'll want to be a blessing to other people. And my prayer is that if you're not yet a Christian, you will come away thinking, God wants to be generous to me and I want to come to God through Jesus Christ and receive his generous love. So I do hope and pray that that God will be at work among us as we consider uh, these verses today. So um, the first thing then is we see that we should be generous in order to have an all-rounded character. And let me just go back, first of all, to verse, verse 6. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete the work, complete among you this act of grace. Now, uh, if you've been here in previous weeks, you'll know that, that one reason why Paul sent um, Titus to Corinth was because he was really anxious to find out how the believers were there. And um, he'd sent them a stiff letter, the previous letter, uh, 1 Corinthians, which had quite a few rebukes in it. And he, he was quite concerned. Have they accepted my rebuke? Have they hardened their hearts? Have they turned away from God? Have they, have they repented as they needed to repent? And so he'd sent Titus to, in order to um, check out that the believers were we're okay spiritually. But then this verse tells us there's another reason why he sent Titus. It was because he wanted to make sure that this collection for the believers in Corinth was going to go ahead. So for the believers in Jerusalem. Now he'd refer to that in, in, in chapter 16 of, of his first letter uh, where he'd encouraged the believers to, to put aside a certain amount of money each week in order to build up a fund for the relief of the saints in, in Jerusalem. But then he, he'd sent Titus to, to try to bring to completion this, this, this act of 
of kindness which they had initiated. And so now in these verses then he's giving reasons for them to complete this act of generosity. So the first one is this, as we said, that they should be generous in order to have an all-rounded Christian character. Let's look now at verse 7. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, as I said, that could be translated, and in your love for us, according to some manuscripts. See that you excel in this act of grace also. Now that word that's translated great, uh, that you, that's translated excel there, is the word which uh, is often translated in the New Testament as abound. Uh, we had it back in chapter 1, and verse 5, where the apostle um, said, uh, according to this translation, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so also through Christ we share abundantly in comforts too. Or literally, as we abound in Christ's sufferings, so also we abound in comfort also. So, when he says here, you excel, he's saying, you are abounding in these virtues. They, they, this church had overflowing amounts of, the, of, of various different virtues. Now, I think that perhaps we are in danger when we read the letters of Paul to, uh, to the Corinthians because he's focusing on specific problems that there were there in the church, we perhaps were in danger of thinking, oh, that was a rubbish church. You know, oh, you know, they got this wrong, they got this wrong, got that wrong. You know, no good church. No, that's actually not what he says about the church. This was a church which, which really did know the blessing of God in an amazing way. They'd seen some fantastic conversions. Large numbers of people had been, had, been, uh, had been converted through this church. And the church had a huge uh, endowment of the Holy Spirit amongst. I mean, if we go back to chapter 1 Corinthians, chapter 1 and verse, verse, uh, verse 4, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus that in every way you are enriched in him, in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony among, about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you are called into fellowship with of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's quite a commendation, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I wouldn't mind having a commendation like that uh, said about me. I wouldn't mind that being said about this church. This was a, this was a very, very fine church. And yes, it had problems. But they were teething problems. They were problems of growth. They were problems of, 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 of life. Better to have, as I sometimes say, better to have... The disorder 
of a kindergarten than the order and peace of a graveyard. This was a church which was booming with life, but yes, there were some issues that it was having to face along the way. And so here's a church that is abounding in virtues. So coming back to chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians and verse 7, it was abounding in faith. There's a lot of faith in this church. They really believed God. It was a church which was abounding in speech. They, the members of this church, they, they could say tremendous things about God. They, they, they really knew their Bibles and they could, they could speak in wonderful ways about, about Christ and about the gospel. Uh, they, it was a church which abounded in knowledge. Great things were understood by this church. It was a church which abounded in earnestness. And we've, we, we saw this uh, a few weeks ago as so we were learning about the, the way in which this church had, had, um, had, had very earnestly repented. When Paul confronted the church about, about its sin in tolerating in its midst people who, a man who had been sexually immoral who'd, who'd been, uh, and, and who'd been adulterous and, and incestuous. Uh, when, they, when this church was confronted by Paul, that they showed, it showed tremendous earnestness. First, chapter 7, verse 11. See what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you and what eagerness to <coughs> clear yourselves, what indignation, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. Here's a church which is very serious about applying uh, Christian doctrine. And uh, a church which, which had a great deal of love for all of its problems, which we'll come to later. It, it had a great deal of love for the apostle. Now, <coughs> there is a, a question about the inter- interpretation or translation uh, of the end of verse 8. That's verse 7. Uh, it says, you excel in our love for you. Now, it could be that some manuscripts, there's a manuscript variation there. Um, it could be that they, it's excelled in the love which it's understood from Paul. Or some of our manuscript says they, it, it excelled in the love that it had for Paul. But either way, there's this, this abounding love in this church. So he says, given that you abound in these virtues, see that you also abound in this grace, the grace of giving, the grace of generosity. Now, I think there's a couple of quite important things we can learn from, from this verse. First of all, we who are believers should strive for excellence in our Christian lives. If I can put it in that term. We should seek to abound in virtue. Now, our world talks about this, doesn't it? Striving for excellence. And the world says, oh, you know, you want to strive to be a, an excellent athlete. You want to strive to be a brilliant uh, student to, to get a 
you know, to get a to get your to get first class honours in your degree and then go on to do a master's and then go on to be a PhD. Strive for excellence. Ah, oh, you want to strive to be a brilliant businessman or businesswoman. Well, these things have their place as long as as long as we, we do not idolise these things. But what the Bible says is strive to be a brilliant Christian. A Christian who abounds in the virtue of God. Who's, who, who abounds in holiness. Who abounds in Christ-like qualities. Paul talks about this in, in Philippians. He talks about how he, he says that he is not, um, he's not yet achieved perfection. Uh, Philippians 3, he says... Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. For brothers, I do not consider that I've yet made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's striving to be holy. He talks in, in one Corinthians as well about how he goes into training like a boxer. Fighting to conquer this, his body. To, to overcome sin in his life. The writer of the Hebrews talks about how, how we should run uh, with perseverance. The race that is set for us. Therefore, since we are surrounded, Hebrews 12, verse 1, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I wonder if you're a Christian. I wonder if you've settled into a sort of mediocrity. Oh, well, that'll do. You know, uh, yeah, well, I, I, I'm, I'm not involved in any gross sins. Well, I might lose my temper occasionally. I might be a bit greedy sometimes. I might, I might say some things that I shouldn't say and have a few thoughts I shouldn't. But I'm basically, I, I, you know, I, I muddle along as a Christian come to church once on Sunday and watch football Sunday afternoon and do other things during the week and not really involved in any much outreach, not, not really that bothered about overcoming sin, but you know, I'm just sort of muddling along as a Christian. Maybe, has to be said, perhaps gently drifting backwards as a Christian. Just sort of, you know, perhaps you can look back and you can see that sins that you were on top of a few years ago are actually now... Those sins are starting to creep up on you. We should not be happy to be mediocre Christians. To be average Christians. We should be striving for that perfection. Striving to be holy. Of course, we will never be perfect in this life. But you know, sometimes people pick up on that biblical truth, which is true. We will never be perfect in this life. Say, oh, well, that's, you know, I'm never going to be perfect. So might as well just 
come to terms with the fact that I'm just, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Well, you are a sinner saved by grace, but I mean, do you want, does God want you to stay a sinner? No. You will never be perfect, yes, but he wants you to, to, to make progress, he wants me to make progress, so that, you know, you're, you know, you're 95% there or 98% there. Is that your goal or do you just think, oh, well, as long as I'm sort of, you know, roughly okay, it doesn't really matter. So there should be this striving excellence. But then also, this should, we should strive for an all-round excellence in our Christian lives. You know, sometimes in everyday life, you, you come across people, don't you, who are a bit unbalanced. It's a bit like, you know, some unfortunate people, you know, they, 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 have, they have a, you know, this dwarfism whereby, you know, they land up with a big head and big torso and, and very small legs and, and arms. And that, obviously that's, that's, that must be quite a difficult thing to, to live with. But sometimes you get the spiritual or moral equivalent of that. You get some people who, well, you get some people in life as well who, who perhaps they're brilliant academics, but they don't know how to change a fuse. Totally impractical. Or you get others who are fantastic mathematicians, but they cannot get on with their wife and their children. Or you get other people who are um, great sportsmen, but they can't add two and two together and make four. You get some people who are unbalanced in their gifting. And sometimes you get some Christians who are unbalanced, who are very, very highly developed in one area, but very poorly developed in another area. Perhaps really got the idea, oh yeah, must be at church every Sunday. That's absolutely bang on in terms of obedience, yes, and, and commitment to God and, and, and being at church and, and, and being at midweek meetings, but filthy temper. Or maybe uh, you have, maybe have another person who's really good on evangelism, but hardly ever prays. Or you might have somebody else who, who um, is, 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 is very keen on, on being you know, morally pure, no hint of sexual immorality, but there's a pride there. Now, we need to cultivate every virtue as Christians, not just one virtue and leave another one untouched, but we need, by God's grace, to develop in every area so that we are fully rounded and fully developed obedient children of God. And what Paul is saying to this, these people in Corinth, now look, you're excelling in one area, which is, which is, which is in, well, in several areas, in speech and, 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 and so on, and knowledge and faith. That's great. But see that you also excel in this matter of giving. You're bound in this matter as well. So we should give as, to, in order to be fully rounded. We should be generous in order to be fully rounded uh, believers. Now, next thing. Secondly, we should be generous in order to prove the genuineness 
of our love. He says in verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Now, just before we go on to look at what he does say positively about why we should uh, be generous to, to prove our love is genuine, just notice as, as we're going through, notice what it says there, very interesting. He says, I say this not as a command. Paul does not say, he, if, if Paul had wanted to, to say, okay, this is the amount that you should be giving, and I'm commanding you as an apostle, you must give this certain amount. This would have been his golden opportunity. He could so easily have said, have you not read in the Old Testament, you must give 10% of all you have. He doesn't do that, does he? He says, I say this not as a command. I'm not commanding. I'm not giving you like a, a hard and fast rule as to what level of generosity you are to show. And in fact, you won't find anywhere else in the New Testament either. If you, you go through the letters of Paul, you won't find anywhere he says, this is the specific amount that you should be giving. And you go to the teaching of Jesus, same again. You cannot find anywhere in the teaching of Jesus a command to his disciples, you must give X amount. Now, you may, many of you will be aware that there are many teachers today who insist that every Christian must, as a matter of obedience, give 10% of his or her income away. And they will usually insist that that 10% should be given to uh, their own organization or their own church. Some will go so far as to check up on their members to make sure that they are giving their 10%, and if they don't give their 10%, there'll be a knock on the door, and they'll be asking, uh, where's the money? But we should remember that the Old Testament tithe was part of the Old Testament ceremonial law. And was very much tied to the sacrificial system. In fact, part of the tithe was meant to be eaten by the person who brought it. Another part was to provide for the Levites, who were approximately one-twelfth of the population of, of Israel. and had to, They were the priests and they had to be provided for. But nowhere is the tithe imposed upon believers in the New Covenant age. Now, someone might point to Matthew chapter 23 in verse 23, where Jesus said, speaking to the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and dill, and come in, and have neglected weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. But remember that this was said by Jesus to the Pharisees when the sacrificial system was still in operation. Of course the Pharisees should have carried out the tithe because they were living under the old covenant. But what Paul is saying is that they should not have neglected the other more important moral teaching at the same time. It should not be interpreted as a command to continue Old Testament practice. 
Another example of, of an Old Testament ceremonial law referred to by Jesus is in Matthew chapter 5 and verses 24, 23 and 24, where he says, So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Is Jesus saying that as Christians we should offer gifts on the altar? No. But there's a principle there which we should apply. So that applies also. I think this is how we should apply that, understand that saying in Matthew 23. Does this mean that God doesn't want us to give anything anymore? That, that, that we just hold on to our money? Absolutely not. Because that's what the whole point of this passage is about. That we should be generous as Christians. And if we apply what is said here in, in chapters 8 and 9 of, of 2 Corinthians, we'll probably land up giving far more than 10% of our income. Many of us anyway. But it should be done gladly and willingly because we want to give, rather than because some pastor has told us, oh, you've got to give your 10%, you know. So, looking at what he says positively there, he says then, I say this not as a command, but to prove the earnest, by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Now, that sounds a bit strange. We think, what does, that, what does he mean by that? Well, I think the way to understand it is so that we may, to prove by comparing what you do with the earnestness of others, you might prove the genuineness of your love. In other words, what he's saying to them is, as they give generously, they will show that they have real love. And that real love will itself prove that they are true believers. Now, in, earlier in our service, we, we read from first letter of John. And uh, in chapter 4, and uh, just a, little bit, a bit before that, in chapter 3 of John's first letter, uh, John writes that our practical love, practical giving to others, shows that we are believers, and it shows that that, um, that we are born of God. So, um, uh, we we'll perhaps pick up in verse 11 of 1 John 3. It says, For this is the message you've had for heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And then go on to verse 16. By this we know love that he lay down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for, our, for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does the love, God's love abide in him? Let us children, little children, let us love not in word or talk but in deed and in truth. As we are generous we show 
that we have real love. And that shows that we are born again. It's not that we are saved by being generous. No. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But that, that, that realization of the love of God will lead us to that generosity. Thirdly, we should be generous because Christ has been generous with us. Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Third reason why the believers are encouraged to, to be generous is because Jesus has been generous with us. And uh, as he speaks about the generosity of Jesus, he, he first of all talks about where Jesus was, what he gave up. And clearly implied in this is that Jesus, before he became a man, was in heaven. And he was in glory. He had every conceivable blessing and comfort as he was at the Father's right hand. Philippians 2 talks about this, doesn't it? That he, he, uh, he was in the form of God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But there he was in heaven, at the Father's right side. Uh, John also talks about this in, in John, in his first letter, uh, first chapter of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And, and he was, talks about how he was in the bosom of the Father. He was right there, in the most intimate relationship with the Father, enjoying unspeakable happiness the angels all worshipping him and knowing the, the great love of God that's the situation he was in but he gave that up he did not hold on to that luxury that he was enjoying and Philippians talks about how he he emptied himself and took the form of a servant. It's not that Jesus stopped being God. He was still God. But he, if you like, he stopped enjoying, the son stopped enjoying the privileges of his divinity and the comforts of his divinity. And he, he allowed himself to be reduced down to a tiny cell in the womb of Mary. And he allowed himself to, be, to, to, be, to go through human birth. He allowed himself to be placed in a feeding trough, in a cattle shed. And he was willing to grow up as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a boy and be treated as, as just a, a child. And then he was willing to, 
to learn the trade of, of being a carpenter. And then he entered in his public ministry and he went through three years of being, of being intensely busy, people making demands of him all the time, people wanting to kill him, being hated, despised, rejected, homeless. And then he went through the dreadful agony of the cross. And as he hung naked on that cross, he went through the shame and horror of that situation. And he bore the wrath of God against the sin of his people. So from having been so high, from having been so rich in heaven, he became poor. He lost everything for us, for the sake of those who are his children. So that, Paul says, in him you might become rich. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, so that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Now, some false teachers falsely say about this verse, Ah, so if you trust in Jesus, you'll be rich materially. Well, we've already dealt with that last week. The scriptures are so, so clear that, that um, we're not necessarily promised material riches in this world at all. Of course, some Christians are rich. We know that. But that's not promised as part of being a Christian. But the true Christian is unbelievably rich spiritually. Paul talks in Ephesians chapter 1 about how we who believe in Christ, we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you are a Christian, you are a spiritual billionaire. In spiritual terms, you are far richer than the richest man who walks the face of this earth. You've been chosen by God before the creation of the world. Loved with an everlasting love. You've been adopted as a child of God. You've been redeemed from slavery to sin. You're forgiven for all of your sins. You've been brought into the family of the church. You've been promised that, that when Jesus comes again, your body is going to be raised again and, and you will be completely free from all suffering and you will reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. If you are a believer, you are so, so endowed by God, so blessed by God spiritually. So Christ showed this amazing generosity. He sacrificed so much in order to make us, in him, so rich. So Paul is saying, look, this is what's happened to you. You are so blessed. Given that you are so blessed spiritually, 
can you not show some generosity materially? Realize who you are. Realize how blessed you are spiritually. And you will find it quite difficult, I think, to be mean materially with other people. And this is the way he's arguing. Not saying, you've got to give this amount. He's saying, no, look. Think about what you have in Christ. Think about what he's done for you. Would you not want, in the light of that, would you not want to reach into your pocket and, and, and be generous towards your, your poor brothers and sisters in another part of the world because the Lord has been so generous and kind to you? So then here are these three reasons that the Apostle uh, gives that we thought about today for generosity. First of all, in order to have a fully rounded Christian life. that We should not neglect this area. It's part and parcel of being a Christian. Don't neglect this part of your discipleship. It's not the only thing. But part of being holy, part of being a consistent Christian is that you learn to be generous. Secondly, because as we're generous, this proves that our love is genuine, which in turn proves that we are truly born again. But thirdly, we should be generous because Christ has been generous with us. Well, as we apply this to ourselves, I wonder, first of all, maybe there's somebody who's not, not a Christian yet. Maybe you've never really come to Christ. You've never really received these blessings. Well, if, if, if that's how you are, I urge you, come to Jesus and receive the, these vast treasures. God, is, is, God has laid a great spiritual banquet before us and he says, look, come and buy, come and eat, come and enjoy these wonderful blessings. But maybe, if you are a Christian, maybe God is speaking to you in some way. Maybe um, there's a sense in which perhaps um, you, perhaps I, need to round out your Christian life. Perhaps there's a, there's a virtue that's been neglected in your life. And perhaps one of those virtues perhaps may be the virtue of generosity. Perhaps you've had a very easy come, easy go view of the Christian life rather than really striving to be what God wants you to be. Maybe uh, you need to start to show that generosity in order to prove that you really are a Christian. Maybe you've lost sight of, of the Lord's great love for you and you need to start to reflect that. Think about it, first of all. Dwell on the Lord's love for you, but then start to let that affect the way that you treat other people. Well, now, um, we're going to sing now um, the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on Which the Prince of Glory Died, before we come to share the Lord's Supper together. And um, you see how it says at the end of verse 5, in verse 5, 
Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So let's now stand and sing this hymn together.